Bumblebee keeping has been on the rise in New Zealand, supported by the need for pollinators on commercial farms, mostly tomatoes and kiwi fruit. But forget everything you know about beekeeping before you take on bumblebees, says Dr. Nelson Pomeroy. He's the author of a new book called Bumblebee Keeper, a personal story of pollinator management. He's a scientist and teacher with a long career in commercial beekeeping, and he joins us now. Hi, Nelson. Hi, Jesse. Good to talk to you. How long have you been interested in bees? Oh, as long as I can remember, and that's a long time. I used to stroke the backs of bumblebees oh. on flowers when I was a little child. They're lovely and soft and velvety. They are, eh? I've got a real attachment to bumblebees, and we had some, I think it might have been a pumpkin uh, plant in our garden this year, this summer, and the bumblebees just loved it all day long. There were dozens of them. made me so happy. There's something quite charismatic about them. There is, yeah. Do you need to change your approach much when you move from beekeeping to bumblebee keeping? There's absolutely no comparison between the two. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, the thing is with honeybee keeping, the bees fly loose from, <clears throat> from hives in an apiary outdoors. Um, bumblebee keeping, if I, it sounds horrible to say so, but it's like raising livestock units, each with a social complexity of a wolf pack on the scale of battery chickens. Basically, they're a factory-reared creature indoors. Mm-hmm. Can you talk us through that? What does that look like exactly? <clears throat> okay, so the each nest of bumblebees starts off from a single queen. They are the ordinary big ones that you think of as a normal bumblebee. They're actually fertile female queens. And each queen is put in a little compartment to lay her first eggs and fed with honey and pollen. And in a three weeks she hatches out about 10 workers and they get put in a bigger hive and they continue to be fed in a controlled environment room and then maybe when there's a hundred workers in there they go out they just couriered out to greenhouses or other crops that's the way it's done commercially so a bumblebee production unit is just an anonymous building with lots of controlled environment rooms inside and rows and rows of hundreds of little hives of bumblebees has there been a growth in the bumblebee industry in recent years? Actually, it's pretty stable now. I started it in around 1990, and everywhere the industry started, the demand for tomato pollination was so great, it just blew up in our faces. Um, we just, anywhere it's been started, it made such a huge difference to the production of greenhouse tomatoes that people just couldn't get enough of them. Huh. And so it's always been a struggle to get that started. I was told that when the industry started in Europe, the French growers got their wives to weep over the phone to the bumblebee factory to see if they could get the bumblebees because they were so successful. Um, and the same in New Zealand. It just expanded really fast when I started it. But during, it expanded for about five years into the 1990s, and by the end of the 1990s, it had pretty much stabilised everybody. Every tomato that you eat from a supermarket has been kissed by a bumblebee, and so the industry is quite stable at the moment. Do we need to, I mean, the description didn't sound that um, appealing. Do we need to worry about the ethics and um, standards of bumblebee farms to make sure the bumblebees are happy? Yeah, that's a tricky one. It always sounds um, bad like that, especially if you mention battery chickens. And there's such a sort of an emotional thing about what's natural or what's not natural. Um, 
the short answer is no, I wouldn't worry a, a tiny bit. The conditions in which they're kept in the production units, they've got everything they want. The only reason a bumblebee goes out on flowers is to get food, and if you give them food, they don't need to. So the vast majority of natural bumblebees and hives outdoors never see the light of day. They just stay inside looking after their young ones, <laughs> and that's what happens in a factory as well. So, And the survival in nature is very poor. Nature is a dangerous place, Jesse. Yeah. Um, it's not good to be out there. Most bumblebee, nests, most bumblebee queens die without starting a nest, and those that start a nest don't succeed in nature, whereas when you're in captivity, they do very well. Um. I remember the same arguments for um, when, I, when I stopped being a vegetarian and started eating meat. Um, remember reading Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's book saying that actually a farmed life for an animal was a pretty good life compared to what they might have out in the wild. That's probably a conversation for another time. Why did you write the book? <laughs> well, really, I um, felt there was a story to tell. Um, I'm retired now. I've um, had... My career has done in 10-year jumps. I was a student for 10 years. I was a, prof a lecturer at Massey for 10 years. I was in the business for 10 years. Then I was a school teacher for 10 years. And each time I changed, there was work that hadn't been sort of written up. And so I thought there was some real technical stuff that hadn't been told. And um, I just thought it was a good Kiwi innovation story, really. Um, and... Um, yeah, thought I'd get it out there. I know you have a particular interest in um, rare and dwindling bee species. Yeah, the, um, it's no problem in New Zealand because here they're just an introduced species and would be regarded as, an, as invasive if you brought them here now. But in the native countries in North America and Europe, there are species which are dwindling or becoming very rare. And the usual reaction to that is to say, well, we've got to increase biodiversity, set aside natural areas for them to live. And that's often a very good thing to do. But it depends why they're becoming rare. And I think one of the species that's become extinct in England is probably become extinct from competition from other kinds of bumblebees. And so growing extra flowers doesn't really help. In fact, the one place they do well in New Zealand, that particular kind, is down Lake Tekapo. And the reason they do well there is because there are hardly any flowers until summertime when the viper's bugloss comes out, and that doesn't last for long. And that kind of bumblebee likes a short season huh. when the other bees don't get a look in. Hmm. And um, I actually told this to the guy in England, Dave Golson, who was part of that project when they were trying to introduce this species of bumblebee there, and he said, yeah, you might be right, but there's not going to be much public um, public support for removing flowers. No. But that's an example of a counterintuitive thing, why a rare bumblebee might be rare for reasons you don't think. Love that. And the North American ones, they appear to have probably got some new disease. And so growing more wild flowers and things where um, other species are already common isn't going to help them. But what can help them is to do what we do in New Zealand for rare birds. We take an artificial approach. We, for rare birds, we often take their eggs away from them. We rear them in captivity. We set up predator-proof enclosures, and we put them back there. And for rare bumblebees, particularly in the North American situation, what they should be doing is making bumblebee enclosures, just big flight cages, rearing them using the same artificial methods that we use in bumblebee factories, and maintaining a captive population. It's probably the only thing they can do. 
but there's not a lot of enthusiasm for that among the more sort of hardcore environmentalists. Very interesting. Who is your book for? Who do you hope it might help? Well, it's a bit of a tricky thing. I call it a technical memoir because mm-hmm. I know when my wife was reading it, she said there's a lot of technical stuff in here. A lot of people are going to find that a bit tricky, and indeed there is. So it's a mixture of um, of actually direct advice to people in the research industry, if you like, working with bumblebees on ways they could be doing things based on my experience. And then mixed up with that, I've got you know, a very highly personal um, memoir in there, you know, ranging from quite family issues to you know, how my life went. So I see it in a way as a snapshot of a scientific career that um, shows the sort of the, the highs and lows of a real case of how work was done. Good stuff. Well done. Where can people get a hold of it? Um, my website here is simply bumblebeekeeper.com, bumblebeekeeper, all one word. And it's also available on Amazon. It's printed in America, Australia, and Britain. And, um, yeah, if they go on that website or just Google my name and the name of the book, it'll probably come up on one of the bookstores around the world. Good stuff. Good to talk to you today. Thanks for putting all that work into this book. Yeah, thank you, Jesse, for the chance to talk about it. Yeah, Dr. Nelson Pomeroy, who is uh, author of a new book called Bumblebee Keeper, a personal story of pollinator management.